hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. All right, welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here with Samantha Bear and uh, Professor Thomas Kohler uh, here at BC Law. is going to be talking to us today about an issue that's uh, been in the headlines pretty heavily uh, for those of us who uh, follow sports. Obviously, the MLB lockout, which recently concluded, uh, actually after a good period of time here, of the MLB Players Association and Major League Baseball owners going back and forth over uh, a number of issues to try to resolve their labor dispute, which we're going to be talking about here today. Uh, joining us, uh, as I said, is Professor Kohler. He is a concurrent professor of law and philosophy here at BC. Uh, he's an internationally recognized authority on the labor and employment law of the United States and other Western nations with a special emphasis on German law. He has served as a Fulbright professor on the law faculty of the Johann Wolfgang God, uh, you're gonna Goethe. Have to, Goethe, there you go. Uh, <laughs> university and has taught at the University of Texas School of Law and Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. Um, but instead of just reading everything off the internet, I'd like to have you just introduce yourself, like what you'd want folks to know. I know a lot of students know, uh, know you here at the school, but anything you'd uh, want people listening to this to, to know about you uh, take it away uh, <laughs> it's a little bit hard to know what people would like to know about <laughs> me who don't already know me um, in terms of labor law uh, I as you've pointed out I do a lot on the continent I have uh, as I often do I've got a, a doctoral candidate from Heidelberg with uh, me now we often have uh, or I often have visitors from abroad who work with me um, in terms of baseball, uh, I was thinking about this as you were uh, doing the introduction. In 1996, I was asked to write for a Feshrift, and I was asked to write about the recently concluded baseball strike then. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the first time I was able to cite my little boys as my, <laughs> as my experts. Uh, so I'm sorry they're not with me today. No worries. I, they know more than I do about <laughs> the insides of uh, baseball. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, well, so before we uh, get into the topic, we just want to sort of set the table in terms of what's gone on with this lockout. Because as you know, you're just referring to the to the '94 uh, lockout. There, right. this is the the first time it's happened since then, which is pretty unprecedented. And there's obviously a lot, um, you know, in terms of the the back and forth between the two sides. So I was thinking, uh, Sam, do you want to sort of set the table of uh, you know what's happened during this lockout? Yeah, sure. So um, the old collective bargaining agreement between the players' union and the league, it ended on December 2nd, and the players were locked out effectively at midnight. Um, so this lockout ended up lasting 99 days, actually. Um, and there was just a lot of controversy around it. Um, it's interesting that the players even chose to lock the union. Sorry. Employer. <laughs> the Baseball. league actually chose the league owners. The league owners actually chose to lock out the players in general. It seems pretty drastic, and it's something that the MLB has done um, in the past. So, if you have any thoughts on using the lockout as kind of a tool in their kit to get what they want, and I guess first just to explain like, what is a lockout. Like yeah. when we talk about that, what are we what are we talking about from a legal and business standpoint? Okay, that that's a good question. Um, a lockout is a uh, situation in which the employer decides to put pressure on the employees by not allowing them to work. Mm -hmm. So they literally are locked out of the workplace. Uh, in baseball, they locked them out of the stadiums. They yeah. couldn't go to any of the uh, team's training areas, etc. Um, there are a long line of cases dealing with lockouts. There used to be a distinction between what was called a, a defensive lockout and an offensive lockout. The defensive lockout could be used by an employer to protect a bargaining unit. Um, for example, if a 
union had organized a number of employers and had chosen to go on strike against just one of them, thereby putting enormous pressure on one that would uh, the employers could lock everyone else out to defend the uh, employer's unit. The offensive lockout was used, um, the, the old distinction was when the employer chose to put pressure on the employees by locking them out and then saying, all right, now we'll bargain. Uh, the classic case here is one that involved uh, a shipyard in Chicago. The union had often gone out on strike uh, at a time when ships were coming in, uh, like boats needing work, and the employer was often in a bad position. Uh, it had to get the work out, and so it would settle on the union favorably to the union. The employer decided, oh, you know, instead of doing that, we're going to lock these guys out in the middle of the summer. Uh, there's not much going on then. This would give us an enormous advantage. The court said, that's fine. You can be, either party can use economic pressure on the other. So what baseball decided to do was that this would be, they thought, advantageous to them. So they locked the players out, uh, what, in early December? December 2nd. Yeah. Right. And uh, then things, of course, sat for 43 days before yeah. an offer was made. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about uh, the, the owners locking the players out, or, or, or and you just look at this from a labor standpoint, are they able to? You know, I know, I know there's the, the on-field product, there's you know baseball, but you know this extended to, to intellectual property. You saw the the MLB, you know, scrubbing from all of their media, you know, images of the players. Um, is the league able to operate absent a uh, collective bargaining agreement, or does that agreement need to be in place for business to be conducted at all? Like, just how much is on the line uh, when we when we talk about the negotiation of that agreement uh it's a little bit hard to answer your question so let me <laughs> let me let me t- make a beginning at it and then you sure. can close it again can the employer act, act without a collective agreement yes um according to law all of the terms and conditions remain in place and they remain in place until a point is reached which is called um um, it's a, and it's a funny term. When the parties reach impasse, mm-hmm. then the employer can make changes in any of terms that are called mandatory terms, that is, terms that have to be collectively bargained. The question, of course, is, well, when are you at impasse? Mm-hmm. Right. And no one really knows. I have seen it's an intellectual concept. Mm-hmm. It seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. But I've actually seen cases in which both the employer and the union said we were uh, at impasse, and the National Labor Relations Board said, no, we find that you weren't. Therefore, the <laughs> changes the employer made were unlawful. Very good. Uh, so, so does that rest been, upon sort of a good faith dealing between the two sides to determine when the impasse is, or is it, since it doesn't seem like there's an def- objective definition of it? There is no objective definition okay. of it, and uh, it's been often criticized for that. It's right. been criticized for decades for that. Okay. Um, it actually allows – the government actually ends up putting its thumb on the scale by saying, all right, uh, the employer can make changes and will protect the changes, which – puts the union then in a position of having to react in some fashion. Okay. Um, in the real world, of course, the parties have plenty of incentive to get an agreement done. 
in this case, the employer locked the players out at a time when it thought, obviously, that it would have great advantage, and it was no, and obviously in no hurry to get back. Right. I was actually surprised they settled when they did. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just within the last week. Yes, yeah. it okay. was. Right. I expected this to go on till mid-May. Yeah. And why was that? Uh, it seemed to me that uh, the employers, uh, the, the league thought it could get certain concessions from mm-hmm. the union. I also thought it was not a good move, but mm-hmm. that's beside the point. Right. Um, at that point, um, it would become economically less attractive for the league, and then it would have more, more incentive to uh, mm-hmm. settle an agreement. So they didn't go to the last point that I thought uh, they might stop at. Going around, so I wanted to know your thoughts on how social media and just the media in general played a, ro- played a role in this lockout. Boy, that's a question I'm not sure I can answer. I It's a very nice point. Yeah. Um, the role of social media obviously has changed the ability of the league to manage what it's saying. Uh, it allows the players to get its word out in many different channels. Um, and it allows other people to be part of a discussion they otherwise would be uh, foreclosed from. So what role it's played, I don't know. Uh, and I think it'll take a while for us to figure out exactly how much. I think uh, a bigger role in this was simply um, baseball is fighting for a market. And it is, I think, in danger of losing that market. Uh, some studies I've seen s- seem to indicate that the heart of the baseball fandom at this point is largely baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of a, as the Germans say, an Auslauf model. It's on its way. It's right. on its way out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask. So, you know, from a legal and moral standpoint, you know, when you, when you think about something like the the model rules or you know things that sort of govern or at least establish some expectations for how lawyers are supposed to act. You know, here you have, um, you know, labor bargain. I think back to, you know, Sam touched upon social media, you know, these images yep. of agents and lawyers and players sort of walking back and forth from a parking lot and sort of trying to, you know, read the tea leaves of what's going on. And, you know, there's a fair amount of brinksmanship and uh, chest pounding and bravado that goes into all this. What sort of governs the way parties, you know, when you have, uh, you know, labor on the one hand and industry on the other, the, the way the representatives of those sides are supposed to act, because there's a lot of insinuation about you know who's unreasonable and you know and, and who isn't but when you're in the room and we're sitting at the table what sort of governs the way those discussions are supposed to go back and forth uh what should govern it and what does govern it are often two different sure questions. yeah the remembering that uh the parties are trying to get to an agreement with which they both can live is one of the things one needs to keep in mind in bargaining. Mm-hmm. So uh, if, uh, for example, if you put what used to, it still are called fish hooks in an agreement, mm-hmm. uh, when those fish hooks start to catch the other party, uh, it's going to be harder next time to get an agreement. It's going to mm-hmm. be harder to, during the agreement, because bargaining doesn't stop with the agreement. It right. goes on. There are arbitrations. There are other issues that come up. Stab, keeping trust with the with your opposite is really important. If you have it, and what I've often seen in bargaining is that there'll be uh, 
in fact, at times deliberately, the parties will put on some sort of show at the table. But I would have gone out with my union colleague uh, on the other side an hour before and said, all right, I'm going to say this, you're going to say this, we're going to get to this. That's Mm -hmm. acceptable, good. In bargaining, you're not only bargaining with the union, with the other party, but you're also bargaining with your own team. Right. Right. You've got a number of owners who have very different positions. The major league players, um, there's a big difference between being at the very top of the league and being, uh, you know, a, a, a... entry-level player. Mm-hmm. The minor league players really don't have much representation or voice at all. So mm-hmm. it, it's a complicated bargaining position to Certainly. be in. Um, I also wanted to ask, so you know, one of the uh, characters that sort of come up in this, if you could say, uh, former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh turned labor <laughs> secretary <laughs> Uh, offered to, uh, you know, to, to facilitate a federal mediator uh, in this process. Can you explain what a federal mediator is and does? And, you know, obviously they weren't involved here, but how that process uh, can play out in these types of situations. Uh, the law actually requires mm-hmm. notice to be sent to the federal mediation service and the state mediation service 30 days before bargaining begins. Mm-hmm. Parties do not have to take advantage of the federal mediator or the state mediator, but the Federal Mediation Service plays an awfully constructive role in collective bargaining. Uh, They actually do play, as they say, of mediating between the parties, of helping to bring them together. Uh, It's a very difficult job. Uh, It's one that requires uh, great sensitivity and a lot of experience. I have seen many cases in which federal mediators did a fabulous job, and one rarely hears about it because part of the job is not to be noticed. Right, yeah, exactly. So what do you think would have been beneficial of having a mediator in there? Uh, You'd have to know what the internal dynamics of the bargaining uh, were. I don't know that. So I can't answer the question. Some things, though, that mediators are able to do if the parties are really in a position where they're not talking much to other, uh, each other, the mediator can first of all help. All right, these seem to, to clarify what exactly the big issues are. Uh, if the parties are intractable with one another, they might be more tractable talking to a mediator. Uh, these are the sorts of roles that a mediator can play. With uh, Secretary Walsh, uh, Part of this uh, is the pressure of, well, the government's here. I'm I, uh, a neutral. If I'm unable to bring you together, it shows that you're both being unreasonable or I can <clears throat> make one party or the other appear to right. be unreasonable simply by the public statements I make. It's a dicey thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mediator who is not that public a figure uh can play that role often better. Although I I have seen plenty of situations in which uh, a public figure of some sort, not necessarily a governmental figure, might play a role in bargaining. Okay. Uh, I also want to just sort of take a step back from the the baseball context for a moment and just sort of talk about uh, in terms of labor uh, and employment, you know, just the, the status of unions, you know, MLBPA and really any, any, PA, any players associations and any of these, um, you know, large leagues, uh, you know, these are massive businesses, which, uh, you know, there's, I mean, I know you talked about some of the, the struggles that baseball has, but you know, these 
you know, are, are not unions in the way that, uh, you know, auto uh, workers and pipe fitters and, you know, the regular sort of salt of the earth uh, folks and unions of yesteryear, uh, the, you know, the, the way we talk about those dynamics are obviously different than, you know, the league where these are, you know, sort of high profile, uh, you know, relatively limited, um, you know, uh, parties here in terms of the size and in terms of who's really affected by this. I mean, these are, there's, there's 30 MLB clubs. Like these are not issues that are affecting, uh, you know, you and I on a daily basis. But in terms of unions, there's been a lot of talk of the decline of unions and the decline of, you know, the influence and participation uh, in unions and, you know, an inability for workers to, you know, sort of levy some of what we've been talking about here on their own behalf, the ability to, to try to bring, uh, you know, industry and employers to the bargaining table in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, what are some of the forces that have contributed to that? And, you know, how have we sort of got to this, this point in time where unions are not, you know, sort of being able to do some of what we've talked about here today in terms of MLP, um, you know, for, for workers who work in other industries besides pro athletes? Order lunch now. <laughs> I have, I have written extensively on I this figured. topic. Uh, that's, they're very good questions and I'll, I'll try to give a very sure. tight answer, which, yeah. uh, leaves a lot out. But first of all, you talk about unions of yesteryear. Um, one of the things to be paid attention to in union decline is that it is gone hand in hand with the decline of every other mediating institution mm -hmm. in the United States. So associations of all types, churches, family, all sorts of mediating institutions. And when I use that term, I mean institutions that stand between the individual and either the large uh, uh, institutions of the state or of the market. Mm -hmm. So what collective bargaining does is, in part, um, act as a buffer. The union acts as a buffer between a large institution, more powerful, that employs an individual, mm -hmm. where the individual doesn't have really the ability to bargain at all. Of course, the whole idea of the market is that an individual acts uh, bargains with an institution why, and they reach an agreement about work. Well, of course, for most people, there's no bargaining of mm -hmm. any sort. Collective bargaining doesn't only talk about money. It talks, it is, it's uh, an institution for private lawmaking. The United States doesn't have a lot of employment law. Uh, in, when Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act, it passed it on really against the green field. And essentially Congress said, all right, we can make the law or you can make the law. We'd rather have the parties make it themselves. We'll mm -hmm. give you a structure for making the law. You determine what it is. You bargain it out. And in your own institution, labor arbitration, if there's a problem, you resolve it through the arbitration process. We'll keep the government out. So it gave us um, an institution for doing that. Uh, the decline of unions is uh, not because they're not needed. They're, there's all sorts of reasons for their decline. But one of the impacts of that decline has been the styration of income in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, as union density has declined, especially in the private sector, wage growth has and wage gap the, the income gap has grown significantly now, is there causation there or just purely correlation yeah, yeah there is causation um one of the things unions do is redistribute money in the economy mm -hmm. and they redistribute it from management or investors to workers it's well known that that is 
the case. So you can do this a variety of ways. You can do it through private bargaining or you can do it through taxes. You can say, all right, uh, and this is something to be kept in mind. Montesquieu, uh, Aristotle, all the writers on democracy have always said, if you get too big a gap, mm-hmm. you will no longer have a democracy. Right. It turns into something else. Haves and have-nots. So you have to have a re- – there has to be a, a relative band. It can't get too too distinct. Of course, we've got that now at, at a almost record level. I guess it is at a record level. Um, another th- problem, of course, one sees is the inability of uh, workers in precarious work – to govern any aspect of their lives. So people who are doing gig work. Mm. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, Yeah. often are in a situation in which uh, they'll hold three or four jobs. Um, It's very hard for people to schedule, for example, when they're going to work. Mm -hmm. There are now state laws that are beginning to do that. You must give people two weeks notice as to what their schedules will be, et cetera. Uh, another thing this has done, uh, take trucking, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, trucking was deregulated by Jimmy Carter in the, in the late 70s. We now are having enormous trouble getting anybody to drive trucks. Uh, it's very unpleasant work. It's not very well remunerated. Uh, the conditions under which people work are very poor. That used to be heavily unionized. Mm-hmm. And... The pay was better. Conditions were better. Uh, we're seeing these impacts all over. So where is the future of this? Of course, it's very hard to say. The, America, uh, the United States is a very split nation. Mm-hmm. So having community of any sort has become more and more difficult. Right. Um, along with that, though, one of the things unions do is to put a lot of diverse people together and make them – as a group, decide. All right, what are we? What do we want? How, how are we going to um, set our workplace so that it takes care of the interests of everybody? As Tocqueville said, you know, if you don't have associations, a place where people actually deal on a day-to-day basis, the law that most affects them, you don't have a democracy anymore. So right. I see unions as an absolute key to a democracy. The fact that they're weak has something to do, too, with uh, a weak democracy. Really? I had a follow-up question there, and then Sam will go to you uh, right after. Um, so there's obviously a difference between, you know, a major league, you know, baseball players association, MLBPA, or, you know, really any of these, uh, you know, you hesitate to call them unions here. And, of course, you know, uh, unions representing, you know, uh, sort of everyday uh, tradesmen, as it were. But one of the things that you see in common between, um, you know, both the pro sports world, like we're talking about today, um, and unions in other contexts, or just labor issues generally, and you, you know, you alluded to it somewhat, is there are, of course, powerful uh, legal tools. You might call them loopholes, things like independent contractors. I know you alluded to that there in terms of gig workers that uh, can, you know, keep wages stagnant, can preclude folks from getting benefits. Um, arbitration clauses are another one, class action waivers. You see those um, in pro sports and you, I mean, large companies like to use these things everywhere. And I was just curious, you know, the, I guess, number one, um, if you can just sort of explain the legal context of some of that. And, you know, also, is, is there anything that can be done? Because it seems like those legal tools are able to keep, you know, something of a thumb uh, on the ability of workers to do very much to improve some of the conditions you were alluding to. Uh, you've raised some very important questions. First of all, the, uh, the question of who's an employee mm-hmm. goes back to the French Revolution. Mm. 
the first thing they argued about after uh, the uh, declaring that the Middle Ages were gone, they had gotten rid of all the cores and estates. They said, "Okay, who can be who can be an active citizen to vote?" Well, if were you a servant or were you more than a servant? Today we'd say an employee or supervisor. Um, the question of employee is really a question of whom do you wish to protect and why. The employee status question is not just one in the United States, it's one everywhere. Now, you have to distinguish collective bargaining from some of these other questions. First of all, the question of who is, who is covered by a law is different. So you can be an employee for the purposes of some statutes and not others. Uh, the National Labor Relations Act has one definition. Title VII has another definition. OSHA covers almost everybody. Um, so these differ. The independent contractor uh, question is a very, and it's not just in the United States. This is everywhere today. If you have employee status, certain things come along with it, including in the United States, Social Security, right. workers' compensation, um, uh, certain sorts of legal benefits uh, through the state. If you're an independent contractor, you have none of those. Um, if you are an independent contractor, um, you are, in essence, in business for yourself. Now, if you have a large group of people, for example, uh, Uber drivers is uh, everybody's favorite example, mm-hmm. Um there's no minimum wage requirement for you. There's uh, no time and a half, et cetera. Uh, how much do you get paid? If you're not making enough, who's going to pay you? Well, what you actually end up with with a large low-wage sector is the public subsidizing the business model of companies who don't pay enough to their employees. The whole idea of a minimum wage was to set a floor and uh, it, in the collective bargaining world, um, one is an employee, and then you have the protections through the statute. So the question of independent contractor status, employee status, largely affects people outside of the collective bargaining s- situation. These are the people who are, um, as I say to my students, the question is, whom do you wish to protect and why? With somebody like a Tom Brady, I'm not so concerned right. about his ability to protect himself in the market. If you're working for DoorDash and doing three or four other uh, sort of gig jobs, what sort of income you have is not predictable. The sort of hours you're going to have. Uh, you're dependent on another organization, but you don't have legal status as an employee. And you also bear the transactions costs, so the gas in the car and other things you right. need to facilitate all that. That depends on your agreement with the company, right. but generally, yes. Uh, so you're, what the companies can do is essentially shift the risks of business and the cost of business to a third party. Mm-hmm. Now, if UPS decides to use a large trucking firm to subcontract for them to do long-distance carrying, that's one thing. When you start shifting it to precarious workers, then you get into a situation of what kind of a social impact does this have on the rest of the country? Mm-hmm. Can, for example, marriage rates in the United States and across the West are at the lowest they've ever been recorded. We're not replacing ourselves. Uh, gee, 
why are the marriage rates low? Well, in part, if you can't predict what you're going to get paid every year, right. it's rather hard to say, oh, yes, let's get together and buy a house or buy a truck or buy anything. Mm-hmm. Right. At some point, the bottom begins to fall out, and we're seeing that. Um, okay. I also wanted to you know, talk a little bit more about you know, sort of the, 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 the baseball situation here, which I know folks are interested in. Um, the labor in a the, the labor dispute between the two sides here. I know we said this is the first you know baseball um, lockout since of course 1994. There's been other lockouts and other major pro sports that we've seen um, since then, but this one I, I think is and perhaps this is a bit of editorializing on my part seemed particularly bitter. You know I know you talked about the uh, declining fortunes and perhaps fan base of the game. You know there's been a lot made of. Uh, wanting to use this as an opportunity to change rules in the game that might make it a little snappier, might make uh, you know uh, younger folks more interested, might develop the audience, um, you know, a little bit more. Where does this lockout stand in comparison to other lockouts? It seems like this one. I mean, I don't think anyone's happy about a lockout, but there's a lot of you know ill will here and just a sense of um, you know I, I think resignation on a part of a lot of folks. Like, how does this one stack up against other lockouts that we've seen? In, in pro sports generally? Uh, I'm not enough of a fan sure. to give a, a detailed answer. I can say that, um, of course, hockey's had a number of lockouts. Right. And uh, it has hurt itself, I think, through uh, bad relations. Baseball's had a lot of tensions in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I we saw Rob Manfred uh, at the end of the lockout say, well, he had failed at one of his responsibilities, which was to have good relations with the players. Right. I think that was a, both a disarmingly honest statement and something that he knows he has to work on. And it does have to be worked on. They're not going to be able to do this well unless they can get together. Um, all of these sports have, they earn enormous amounts of money for media, and um, ticket sales don't have that much to do with how much right. money you're making. Um, so looking at how much short-term interest there is in all of this, um, every baseball team now has tried to, as I understand it, have their own network. Mm-hmm. Uh, it right. used to be... For example, in Chicago, the Cubs did this a few years ago. It used to be you could walk into any restaurant or bar or anybody's house and mm-hmm. the Cubs would be on. Right. That's no longer the case. So when there's short-term f- focus on let's get what we can now, I think that also leads to uh, labor relations where one says, well, um, I don't want to, for example, the average player's income had gone down. They're concerned about that. Uh, one can say, perhaps in the greater world, well, gee, entry level income's five hundred thousand, so it's not that bad. Right. Um, even if you're only going to play for four years, uh, which a lot of players do, it's even shorter in the uh, National Football League. Uh, taking that apart, uh, stepping aside from that, um, how do these leagues? keep in mind that they have a common interest, and part of that involves the public being willing to follow them. Right. You asked earlier about strikes. Um, in a strike these days, a union really has to pay attention to its public relations. Employers do too. The, the UPS strike of several years ago mm-hmm. uh, was a good example of that. Um, 
UPS, the union, uh, was on strike for uh, uh, the question went around health benefits. And their appeal to the public was, they're after us now. We're standing up for you. If we lose this, you're next. That had enormous public appeal. And that got an awful lot of public support behind the, uh, the union, which came up with a good settlement. Baseball players, uh, et cetera, or the league, they have to be able to do the same thing. It's a little hard to say, well, we're caring about the public interest when you don't send a, an offer out for 43 days. That, right. that part wasn't well handled. Yeah. Um, Sam, do you have anything? Yeah, sure. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the minor league players a little bit. Um, they obviously weren't represented during this um, collective bargaining agreement. Um, so I wanted to ask you what you think this kind of means for them at all, um, or if they're just inheriting the problems that this collective bargaining agreement kind of created. Um, that's a question that interests me. <laughs> I don't know the answer. Uh, I think they really don't have much of a voice at the table. The, uh, the things where they come into, of course, their, their interests are touched on, are um, when one can go into arbitration, et cetera. Uh, what time of year uh, offers can be made, trades can be made, et cetera. But the... People who play uh, in the minors have really often pretty terrible conditions. And I think for all of us, uh, I don't think there's a little boy or girl in the United States who hasn't thought at some point, oh, it would be so great to be, you know, yeah. I yeah. could be playing. And I've had a couple of students, one student um, in particular, who uh, went up to the Red Sox twice from the minors. He's now a very... Um, Distinguished lawyer in Texas. Uh, he talked about how tenuous um, one's conditions were in that situation. Uh, the minor league players simply don't have much ability to negotiate. And uh, what is that like? Like, what are those conditions? I know that people talk about, you know, your in terms of uncertainty over your future, you know, economically, of course. But what, what, what can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what, what are they facing? Well, well, uh, my classic example, my now late colleague Paul Weiler at, at Harvard uh, mm -hmm. was a well-known sports lawyer, and he'd always invite me over for their their sports conference. Right. And um, one year he had a fellow who had. Uh, gone to Princeton and then played in the minors, was actually playing, as I remember, for the Toledo Mudhens, which is uh, the AAA team for the Detroit Tigers, my team that I grew up with. <laughs> he mentioned that uh, each day one would go to the uh, bulletin board and see if your name was still there. If it weren't, that meant you'd been cut. Nobody mm. came and said, gee, I'm really sorry. You just oh. you took your gear and you went home. It's like high school. Yeah. Uh, even worse, because <laughs> at this point, there's an opportunity cost. You've, right. You've come out of generally college, mm -hmm. not always. You've put off having another career for some years in the hopes, often uh, hopeless hope, that you'll get called up. Uh, as my former student said, you know, he, he got called up and played in Fenway three or four times. Mm-hmm. But he could never quite, 
for and there are all sorts of things that happen, you know, other players playing, other players not playing, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, your life is really so contingent that mm-hmm. you have almost no control over it. Right? right. So essentially if you're not on the forty man roster, you're you're not you don't have employee status like you no. were saying. Right. Uh, I wanted to ask also, you know, I think this can be our we can wrap up with this. I, 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 one thing that's, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities between, you know, uh, lockouts and labor disputes generally and, you know, what we saw or what we see in the professional, uh, you know, with professional athletes in the, you know, like MLB, for instance, um, is just the anatomy of a lockout. You know, we say, okay, you know, the, the, the owners locked the players out. You know, you see on the news websites, you know, I have the, the globe here, different edition <laughs> globe, but you know, there'll be a picture of like a fence at spring training with a chain around it. Okay, we locked the players out. Um, and then there's this, uh, you know, particularly in, you know, media and just, you know, conversations that folks have about this. There's this idea that, okay, well, there's the players that are over here and then there's 30 rich people over here that own these organizations. Um, and they're trying to find some sort of deal, but there's a lot of players. There's a lot of lawyer. There's a lot going on here. It's not as democratic as one might suggest. They're just saying, oh, well, there's the players that want this. I mean, who speaks for the players? Who speaks for the, like, what is the anatomy of the way that when people sit around the table and try to figure these things out, what's really going on just in terms of in practice, um, you know, as, as opposed to the ideas that might be out there about how this is, you know, might work versus how this actually does work when the two sides sit down to try to hammer something out. Well, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, yeah. and I appreciate the chance to expand on it just yeah. a touch. In bargaining, you're bargaining within your group, mm-hmm. and you're bargaining with the other side. Mm-hmm. So uh, for the players, the eight player representatives voted in a majority against the settlement. Mm-hmm. The players in a majority voted for it. So Max Scherzer, people walk right. away and say, well, you know, um, that's what they wanted. We did the best we could. Part of the job is to, first of all, adequately know what your unit's issues are. What do they really want? Mm-hmm. Um, then once you've achieved what you think as the bargaining uh, committee is possible, You've got to sell that agreement often. Uh, same thing for management. You may have people who, oh, no, we're never going to agree to that. So these aren't united fronts, the two sides. There's dissension in the ranks. Oh, yeah. In fact, the famous uh, 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 air controller strike. Right, air travel controllers. When uh, the, the, man, the committee got uh, the best agreement they thought they could get with the government. Mm-hmm. They were happy with it. The government was happy with it. They failed to sell it to the air traffic controller's membership mm-hmm. because the uh, committee lost control of the membership. The membership went on strike, and, of course, the result was being discharged. Now, there were all sorts of problems with that. I don't think President Reagan made a very smart move by discharging all of them. But we're not going to get into that. This is an example of if you cannot keep your own people together, if you don't represent them well, or if you don't understand what their problems are, uh, yeah, you've got bargaining within your group and then you're bargaining with with the, the opposite party as well. Of course. 
Um, okay, well, uh, Professor Kohler, we appreciate you talking with us about this today. Uh, this is the Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. I'm here again with Samantha Bear and Professor Thomas Kohler at BC Law talking with the MLB lockout uh, and labor issues in, uh, in the United States today. And uh, until next time, that'll do for this one. Thanks to everybody for tuning in.